Come for the poetry, stay for the paranormal. Sound intriguing? What about cryptids, folklore, myths, and the history of Florida and the Caribbean? You know who is intrigued by those topics? Jason Katz, native Miamian and the founder and publisher of Islandia Journal, a subtropical periodical of poetry, essays, art, and photography on the subjects described above. Its name derives from a lost city off the coast of Miami, and you'll have to listen to this episode to learn any more about that origin story. You'll also learn about climate change, overdevelopment, access to clean water, and the importance of land acknowledgements. It's one of the most fascinating publications I've ever read, and I am a subscriber. You'll want to be, too, after you listen to this conversation with Jason about his baby, Islandia Journal. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to Season 6 of the Florida Book Club. with Jason Katz, founder and publisher of Islandia Journal. <laughs> I've been talking to you a little bit off camera, so to speak, that I think Islandia Journal, like I'm the ideal audience for this uh, publication. And uh, I, I tell you, lo- following you on Twitter and looking at the website, I still, and I don't know if this was intentional, but I liked it. I still really had no idea what to expect in terms of the content until I got the first issue. I was like, this is so eerie and mysterious and all the things they allude to. And talk about. So it was, it was such a pleasant surprise. I, um, as I said, people who have listened to this podcast will know this, it, like most of my interests that are, uh, represented, uh, you know, on it dovetail in these issues of Islandia. So as a way of further introduction, can you explain Islandia's mission? I mean, the name, how it was conceived and realized, uh, and, and you know, how you came to be interested in the subject matter, you know, and, and maybe who you think the target audience is besides nerds like me, I suppose. <laughs> Well, I'd say, I mean, it's not just, you know, nerds like us. Uh, I mean, though, to your point you know, of having a target audience and you being the ideal, you know, reader or consumer of Islandia content, uh, I am too, which is why I wanted to make it. I'd always had this um, desire to reflect uh, Miami and the kind of greater Caribbean and all, all these stories and uh, folklore and myth of the region back out into the world. I think we have a very kind of special position uh, in today's world. Um, A lot of the issues that confront the broader kind of, uh, I mean, the whole world, but really America too, you know, from, from issues of climate change and sea level rise to, uh, you know, to uh, gentrification and, and the rapid sort of uh, rising costs of living in big cities. Um, Miami is kind of the tip of, of that spear of all of that activity. And so I I really wanted to, and this is, I've always, I've always felt that way, but it seems to all be coming to fruition now, especially, you know, it was kind of like crystallized during the pandemic um, with the great wave of migration to Miami and the rising cost of living and all that, um, that the focus internationally uh, is, is on this city and how we can be an example uh, for either bad or good, uh, unto the rest of the world. And, and so that's, I always wanted to do something that, like that. And, you know, you, you pronounce it Islandia, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I know, yeah. I apologize. No, and that's, <laughs> and that's right. There's no, there's no wrong way to say it. Um, I will say this, the name, um, uh, is inspired by the lost city of Islandia, um, you know, off the coast of Miami. There were 33, I mean, there still are 33 islands that are now part of Biscayne National Park, but in 1961, they were incorporated into a city called Islandia. And I pronounce it Islandia, even though I'm a Spanish speaker, you know, and, and Islandia is, you know, sounds good. 
because in one of their early newsletters, the residents of Islandia very fiercely, um, you know, made the case that, you know, they said it's pronounced I dash Landia. And that's <laughs> how you say it. If you want to sound smart, that's how you say it, you know, by a lot of, you know, kind of like old school, the same guys who would pronounce Miami, Miami, you know, were founders of the city of Islandia, which, you know, it was like, at, at most, at any given time, there were 15 people living there full time across these 33 islands. Um, and it was finally decommissioned in about 2012 because nobody was there. It was not, it was like, you know, it was a puppet city. There was a city hall on the mainland uh, and people voted in elections, but had no real uh, power or, or actual place to govern, um, especially now, especially when they become, became part of the national park. Wow. That is... Yeah. <laughs> That is a heck of an origin story. What and and, and you think it, it lent itself to the title of uh, the journal yeah. because it had this sort of nebulous lost quality. One hundred percent. You know, like the idea of lost cities in general. You know, I've always been into uh, these types of stories. Uh, you know, if, if it's urban decay, if it's abandoned, uh, you know, construction sites throughout Florida. Uh, the idea of a lost city really rang true with me as the perfect kind of. Um, you know, title for a journal that was going to feature, you know, art and writing related to uh, myth and folklore of, of the subtropics. Gotcha. And, and sort of relative to that, you're talking about land usage. I, I found in all three of the issues that I've <laughs> looked at so far, the land acknowledgement and the publisher's notes have been, I don't know, some of the highlights, I guess, to me, which oh, sounds cool. odd, but I mean, the, <laughs> they seemed like they were like creative works in and of themselves to me. I mean, in, in the most recent issue, for instance, you know, you talked about, um, they talked about the, the, the lakes and canals being like open wounds on the land and, and, you know, how that sort of, um, you know, reshaped the Everglades in South Florida, but it's also, there's also a bit of positivity there at the end and, you know, how we can still enjoy some of these, even though, you know, the processes that that led to their creation, you know, or, you know, maybe not the most noble. And I like that because I feel like a lot of eco-criticism and, and things in that vein are like often they're relentlessly negative or nihilistic. So um, do you do you think that uh, uh, that was that part of your intent, though? Like, I, I think some of your words, too, is like accepting, you know, the fact that you know, the absurdity of living in Florida is being on the precipice of environmental disaster and degradation. And we keep piling more people in and, and you use the words, is that so part of leaning into our true nature, you know, not despair or nihilism, but maybe a more mindful view of our predicament and our challenges going forward. Yeah, definitely. Uh, look, it's, there's no, we can't go back and fill in these canals and lakes at this point. Um, there's, to do that would be prohibitive from a cost perspective, but also it just, it wouldn't repair the damage that has already been done to the flow of water coming out of the Everglades. You go and fill in the canals and the drainage canals and, and man-made lakes of South Florida, it's not going to make, you know, more water flow through the Everglades and back towards its original floodplain. Mm. I, I mean, look, I, I'm not a scientist, but that's that's not the reparative work that i'm necessarily talking about right it's i'm not talking about reclaiming you know these spaces i believe more in uh you know there's a a jewish uh principle that i always keep in mind i i was in the real estate business uh kind of early on in my adulthood and and i worked with some of the developers who did this work and but decided that ultimately it was not a place for me but instead that rather I, I would abide by this Jewish principle called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. 
And so I said, okay, you know, I was, I was participating in this, in this, um, you know, this big wide development scheme and, and I want to be able to instead reflect what's happening there in an artistic way and, and use the talent or ability that I have to instead provide financial opportunities for writers and artists, you know, via this journal. Um, and, and so I guess going back to the kind of initial line of, of questioning, you know, about eco-criticism, um, I think the same problems, like I was saying in the intro, the same problems that um, impact, you know, South Florida or Florida at large, uh, overdevelopment, uh, climate change, sea level rise are really problems that are going to affect a lot of places in the United States. Um, you know, if the sea level rises two feet, Manhattan has a problem. If the, you know, if temperatures rise and there's not as much rain in the West, we're going to have more and more wildfires. And, you know, and so, and not to mention, you know, drinking supplies throughout, you know, the whole country. Um, so I think to kind of write Florida off um, or to use it as this like punching bag, uh, you know, oh, well, it's going to disappear. Um, you know, if Florida's gone, everybody else is gone too. And, and so I just wanted to make sure to, um, like enjoy my time here, right. To, to make sure that people aren't like falling into this despair, because uh, if, if good people are falling into despair about the state of, you know, our environment, then they're not going to have the energy or the will to fight against, you know, the forces of, of evil who are damaging it. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I, you know what I do. One of the things I appreciate is that you're not too specific about those forces of evil in the journal. Like, you know, it, it does. You avoid like falling into politicizing it really explicitly. And, and like you said, I, I like that you're looking instead on providing a forum for people to creatively address this and, and reflect on, you know, uh, both the past and current lived reality of being here. And it's yeah, you know, the climate change. Jokes, I feel like with like I was saying earlier, um, it's OK to joke. I joke about this with other Floridians all the time, you know, especially people who live in St. Pete or people on the coast. I'm like, well, you know, buy that house. It'll be coast. It'll be waterfront property in 20 years and stuff. But, yeah, I, I hate when out of state people do it. I should. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, I feel like for people like you're saying, the good people are committed here. We make those sorts of, you know, uh, gallows humor jokes about being underwater. <laughs> but it's it doesn't affect sort of our commitment to living here, I guess. Look, and to the extent that it inspires you, I think that, um, you know, kind of living every day like it's your last uh, <laughs> is, is a good way of living. Uh, and Florida might inspire that in some people, but it also might, might you know, damage other people's psyches. And so I just want to always kind of like maintain the positivity um, about living here, you know, to the extent that I can, you know. If we're having an off the book conversation and I'm not in the right mood, I, I might say, you know, to hell with this place. But um, <laughs> like I was like I was saying to you before, you know, we started, um, you know, recording this. Uh, there's this movie, uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, where the protagonist is riding the bus and he hears these new uh, residents in San Francisco talking smack about the city. And, and he confronts them and he asks them, do you love it? Because you can't. Hate, I hate it unless you love it. And I think the same goes, you know, for living anywhere in Florida, especially, you know, Miami, which is uh, kind of this lightning rod. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard a lot from people uh, that Miami is sort of like akin to New Orleans and Louisiana. It's almost like its own world or its own uh, little place apart that you can't really use it as a as sort of a lens to view the rest of Florida, too. So, um, you know, I. Um, 
that's something that, you know, hopefully we'll get back to here. But uh, I, there was something you, you said that made me think of the um, this is this is uh, interesting. If you subscribe to to Islandia, you'll um, you'll get I, I think. I don't know. I'll, I'll check back, but you'll get this cool bumper sticker that says Miami, see it like an invasive. And um, your story about the last black man in San Francisco kind of made me uh, think of that because uh, as you mentioned in the publisher's note, the most recent issue, um, you, you know, and I, I've made this point elsewhere in some of these that humans are in fact an invasive species in, in Florida. I mean, we were the, yeah. probably, you know, the, the first humans arrived in what is now Florida probably like 10,000 years ago, which in geologic and historical time is nothing, you know, I mean, that's, and uh, I, I made this, uh, when I taught Florida literature, I made this sort of joke to my students that uh, it was the last state to emerge from the sea and it'll probably be the first one to go back in. But, um, <laughs> but I did, uh, you know, so it's like our, the human presence here is going to be very fleeting, <laughs> you know, historically speaking. But I yeah. love that because I've done a lot of studying and talking about the impact of non-native species in the state and like how biologically invaded, you know, some authors have talked about Florida being. I'm, I'm, I mean, we've got up here. It's, I'm sure it's, you know, worse in South Florida. I mean, when I go see my aunt and uncle in Fort Lauderdale, I'm just amazed by the, you know, iguanas that are just devouring their neighborhoods, which, you know, thankfully we don't have up here yet. Yeah. But I thought that you made a really intriguing metaphor out of, uh, you know, the sentiment on, on that bumper sticker. Um, and uh, do you I mean, can you elaborate on the origin and symbolism of that theme? Sure. So the bumper sticker, like you said, it says Miami, see it like an invasive. Uh, the origins uh, we're playing with that phrase on a 1979 ad campaign. Uh, I was paid for by the city of Miami and, and, you know, anybody who was kind of around back then or is a familiar with, you know, South Florida history would instantly recognize the font and then the poster, which was uh, this woman uh, with her top off facing away from the camera. And it says, Miami, see it like a native. Uh, and it was this controversial, you know, marketing uh, campaign. The city paid for it. Like I said, it went out to thousands of travel agencies around the country. Uh, a lot of, you know, opinion pieces were written about it. Um, and, and so I thought that it was kind of like a loaded way. Like, okay, this for this person is the native that you're looking at. Um, you know, this is your typical native topless, uh, tan lines, uh, snorkel mask, you know, in the hand. Uh, come see, come see it like this person, you know, be sexy. Um, and I don't necessarily, you know, fault the city for marketing itself that way. Uh, for a very long time, Miami has been marketed as, you know, a place to come and, and be your best self to come and be, you know, attractive or to be around attractive people. Um, I just wanted to play with that a little bit just cause I was interested in the word name. Of course, like, you know, we have in South Florida, uh, like a massive indigenous history, some of the oldest man-made structures, you know, in the world, in the Southwest of Florida. Um, so, you know, humans, right. The human occupation of Florida is somewhat short-lived, but it's notable. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, that also makes it beautiful that, that it will be this kind of flash in the pan. So we wanted to play with that and say, like, look, by your presence here, uh, you are not a native, you know, Miami was only established in 1896. The, you know, the greater Florida was, I mean, state of Florida was 1845. Uh, there were indigenous populations that were displaced, you know, throughout the early 19th century, but Miami didn't grow to, you know, over 
you know, 20,000 people until just 100 years ago. That's very young uh, in the kind of grand American time scale. And so you could probably, you know, trace yourself back one or two generations to most people in Miami can trace themselves back one or two generations to their you know, ancestors here, unless they were like a very early settler, which is rare. I mean, when I go elsewhere and I tell people I'm from Miami, they're like, you're from Miami. <laughs> or when they come here, they're like, wait, you're from here. It's a, it's a rarity. And, and so all that is to say is everybody here is in some way invasive. You are, you know, you're in a lot of cases, you're down here to participate in the whole, uh, you know, boom, bust real estate economy, uh, or to kind of like, you know, jump on some cash grab, or you're here to be part of the fleeting tourism industry. Um, or you're, or you're down here to, you know, be a creative person or to just be sexy or whatever it is. Um, you, you are an invasive person, accept that in the same way, you know, we accept what has happened, you know, to the environment down here to some extent, um, as you know, that's the first step of, of sort of, you know, engaging with the landscape, right. Is Hey, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm an invasive person. What can I do to, uh, you know, repair and honor the place that I'm in, um, acknowledging that. Yeah, no, I, I and you did, as I said, they, the the land acknowledgements, the publisher's notes in these issues are all very articulate in that way. The the memorial to the Surfside victims, I believe, in uh, one issue was was like, the two, I mean, obviously a disaster of much, much more recent vintage. But, you know, mm -hmm. I, I it was strange how they, um, you know, to me, when I was reading them all, you know, kind of in succession, it was like they were it was kind of put on an equal footing with some of the damage that's been done to, you know, the indigenous populations and 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 to the land itself. I, I kind of like how, uh, you know, there's there's that continuity there or, or a sense of it. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's what Surfside was just like a great sort of a magnifying glass on on carelessness. And, and so everything I do is with great care. And I hope that people approach the things they do in South Florida with great care. When you're careless, uh, you know, innocent people die and, mm -hmm. and, and we are vulnerable, you know, we're vulnerable to hurricanes, you know, who knows what will happen if we get directly hit by one. Um, you know, there were more people died. In, okay. I'm going to maybe get this wrong, but I believe that more people died in Surfside than did, you know, in hurricane Andrew. But that's not to say that the next one, you know, that some some developer, uh, you know, in the you know along the beach didn't build a condo that wasn't ready uh, for the next hurricane, and you know, and another building might collapse, and and we need to remember that. Like this is all part of the sort of acknowledgement of of the things that have happened here. Is we can't we have a very short memory, and that's why Miami has been so successful because of this short memory. <laughs> People have people come and go and the booms and the busts, uh, but there's always more money coming in because people don't think before they do things here a lot of times. And, and when people don't think and they're careless, innocent people go down. And so I just, I just hope that the people who live here and I'm kind of like, it's a crusade almost. Um, I just hope that they care more about what they do constantly. That's very well stated. I, I mean, it reminded me, uh, we, we talked a little bit, I remember, uh, maybe a few days ago via email about Jason Buick's book, The Swamp Peddlers. Uh, yeah. Which, uh, you know, former guest on the podcast, I shouldn't put that plug in there. But um, yeah. but it's it's kind of the same way. It's it's like you see this sort of, it, you, have, you reminded me of something in that book that was sort of evoked is just this history of carelessness with the land. You know, like that's sort of part of Florida's character in the last hundred years, um, sadly to say. I mean, it's just, you know, 
being irresponsible, not not being very forward looking, pursuing really short term gains at the you know the expense of this land, which is really fragile too. Um, and <laughs> that book Alligator by Shelley Katz that I was showing you earlier yeah. off camera. No one, no one, no one. <laughs> this was not recorded. But yeah. one of the characters in that book, which is better than its trashy looking cover and and summary would lead you to believe. Um, uh huh. But he talked about how he uh, the, the main character is like this. He's fictional, obviously, but like this uh, developer in South Florida. And he was like talking about how like he was comparing Manhattan and Miami and saying, like, you know, look at, you know, anyone can build in New York. It's all granite and bedrock. And that's easy. But I built this city on like a spit of sand and seaweed, you know, and it's really, and it makes you reflect like he's so confident in it. But it's like, oh, yeah, the, the building, those are all built on like basically a sandbar, you know, in some yeah. ways. So it's like and you would think like that would lend you know, people to being more cautious and conscientious. And in fact, the exact opposite seems to be true about, you know, managing the land and, and, and development there. So, yeah, it was definitely part of that, you know, um, industrial age dominance of the land and figuring out which tools, you know, we could use to sort of dominate any landscape. It became this, this sort of great, a lot of, you know, developers from the Midwest and from the Northeast came down. It's like, to, to your point of the developer in Alligator and, they're like, if I can hack it down there, you know, I can do anything. If I can turn that from nothing into something, I mean, it wasn't nothing. It was, it was a gorgeous, you know, subtropical yes. swamp, um, you know, estuarine environment. And, and, but it had they, no cash value in that state. <laughs> See, that's the thing. That's, that's the mentality. Sadly. They weren't into ecotourism back then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they, they couldn't put, you know, if other they than the springs, the I suppose, to, put, to market things as glamping. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and 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 uh, Jason's book is, is great because it, it focuses uh, particularly on on the city of Cape Coral, which you know, almost as much as Miami is this sort of, uh, I mean, this perfect example of everything that can go wrong in south florida you know the the rosen brothers dug you know over 400 miles of canals so that every property would be waterfront but now they've also created an ecosystem that is uh filled with you know uh invasive uh nile monitor lizards and uh and makes the storm surge really dangerous to every single person living there and and it's just this like environmental ugliness you know and a lot of people a lot of people's runoff they're going into these canals and emptying out into the bay and you know and kind yeah, of they designed no sewer system or town infrastructure so yeah, no, it was even no. poor civic planning <laughs> yeah and it was just like selling lots to to you know unsuspecting buyers who you know were shown a picture of a home that was really not going to be ready but anyways it was you know cape coral is a really interesting story in the same way as Miami, which is why, you know, I was telling you by email, I've decided to set a novel that I've been working on primarily there. You know, it starts in Miami, but the character ends up uh, in Cape Coral because I think that there's uh, a lot there from a fiction perspective. Oh, God. We're definitely returning to that later on. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, whenever I publish that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, you're preempting my, my final question about what projects yeah. do you have going on and stuff like that. Um, yeah. One, one of the things, though, about the journal that I loved and what what intrigued me about it is that it seemed, you know, even superficially looking at the, you know, uh, the covers and everything and the, 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 your Twitter description and everything was that it seems like kind of like a bestiary, you know, in some ways, mm -hmm. like parts of it are celebrating these 
lost or or cryptid animals and and, and things like and it sort of is comes off as a celebration of the state's natural history and biodiversity and kind of like an elegy for species that have been lost you know like there's a, in a couple of the issues there's features on on animals that are now believed to be extinct in the wild that used to uh be there and i mean it's um you know, even even the the uh, things about like, you know, the two egg stump jumper, like some of these <laughs> cryptid yeah. and legendary animals. I mean, they're linked to real life environmental challenges like habitat alteration and species extinction. And obviously, as we talked, it seems like these are issues that are clearly important to you. I wanted to make sure, first of all, I mean, those are things that I'm personally interested, you know, the study of cryptozoology, um, you know, paranormal. And I'll explain why. But um I used to joke like one of my punchlines early on was, you know, come for the poetry, stay for the paranormal. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, the study of, you know, cryptozoology cryptids to the, to those who don't know is um, the study of animals whose existence has been reported, but, you know, is not really confirmed by the scientific community to egg stump jumper. Uh, Bigfoot is the most famous cryptid, um, you know, Loch Ness monster, et cetera. Like, Florida is, is rife and the Caribbean are rife with these. I thought that, not only the extinct animal sort of elegy, but also the cryptids would be a fun way into Caribbean folklore um, and also uh, natural histories. Um, a lot of times, you know, especially in uh, the islands, people will tell you a story about some mythical creature instead of just telling you like the pure history. And I think you learn much more about the people and their ancestors through the way they tell those stories than the way they might just give you an academic presentation, um, academic presentation. Uh, so like, for example, we had the, um, the first one we ever did was the Chick Charney in issue one. And uh, that was the uh, cryptids of the Caribbean feature illustrated by my friend and regular contributor to Islandia, Russell Beans. Uh, the Chick Charney uh, was an owl-like humanoid that lives on the island of Andros uh, in the Bahamas. And it was just this wonderful story uh, where I, I watched this YouTube presentation by uh, a birder in the Caribbean and then read a lot of uh, local folklore and looked up some reasons why we might have sighted this, you know, three foot tall owl humanoid creature in the forests of a Bahamian island. Um, it's a story about superstition. It's a story about uh, habitat protection. Uh, and it's also a history of, of who and, and what was happening, you know, in the early 20th century uh, to mid 20th century in the Bahamas. You know, the, the kind of most famous story of the Chick Charney is that Neville Chamberlain um, you know, former British prime minister <laughs> and, and his, and his family owned a plantation, uh, on Andros, which is kind of like, Hey, there's a bit of British colonial history, you know, that's part of this now. Um, and the locals said that they cleared a plot of forest that destroyed a Chick Charney habitat. Well, the myth of the Chick Charney is that if you are mean to it, it will bring you bad luck. Um, and so that's also like it shows the local sensibility towards habitat protection and respecting the place they live. So they say that uh, that since Neville Chamberlain's family destroyed the Chick Charney habitat, uh, that he uh, had the misfortune of like flopping his negotiations with the Nazi Party and leading towards the uh, you know beginning of World War II. That he was a failure, you know, politically for that reason. So they tie it all in. And it's also kind of like for the locals as a way of like, kind of like saying, you know, 
piss off British colonials. Uh, uh, you know, this is our story for why you sucked. So yeah, the cryptids, I, I just always felt were a fun way into like local storytelling and, and real history. You know, it's interesting. I talked to a Jenny Stiletovich uh, last season, who's a climate reporter for WLRN, and she worked for the the Herald in a while. But um, she used to write. Uh, she had kind of an, a, a similar uh, approach to it. Like, you know, she wrote stories about pythons and monitor lizards and iguanas, and and you know, she does a lot of the invasive species stuff. But she also covers. She says the really important work, you know, that she does, the things that people should pay attention to are much more mundane, like, um, you know, going to hearings about uh, permits for developing and for water, you know, water policy and things. But she says, but those are boring to most people. So she's like, hey, I'll use Python stories as the gateway drug to get, yeah. get them. And I loved that phrase, getting them into learn, you know, maybe <laughs> be more interested in, you know, the, here, are the, here are the environmental issues that are really going to affect you in South Florida. You know, it, it's like they, they take place, you know, not in, in as spectacular a way and they don't, you know, they're not nearly as, as melodramatic, but it, it was, it, sure. I, I use kind of the similar thing, like come for the pythons, stay for the, you know, discussion of um, clean water. And uh, yeah, you know, I referred uh, broadly earlier to like the evil forces, you know, but I think it's easy to, and a lot of people will do the same thing and, and generalize, but I think, you know, to Jenny's point and what you're bringing up is um, the reality and, and kind of way to actually repair this place is to be exist in a more specific kind of uh, maybe mundane place. Like mm -hmm. you go to some of these meetings and you might actually see why, you know, a real estate project has to happen, you know, or you might see the stakeholders involved and their sort of quotidian needs. Um, and, you know, rather than demonizing everybody involved and making nothing happen, uh, you might have a better understanding of like the different people who need things done in South Florida. And I still sound sort of like vague in general, but, you know, you might assume that, that, you know, the Miccosukee tribe or the Seminole tribe, for example, you know, are, are against everything that's happening, uh, every sort of development that's happening in the Everglades. And, and that's just not true, but you wouldn't really necessarily know that mm -hmm. uh, unless you participated in some of these, you know, these kind of daily meetings or some of these, you know, commission meetings, whatever they may be. Um, you have to kind of like put in that work if, if you really want to be the kind of person who repairs the place. On a more, yeah, talk about quotidian concerns here. I'm curious, like overall, what is the day-to-day -day experience of this been for you? I mean, and maybe not even day-to-day, -day, but like funding, soliciting submissions, staffing, printing, distribution. I mean, what kind of things have you learned about doing this? And, you know, what is the what 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 is the day-to-day -day process of of putting out Atlandia like for you? Yeah. Um, and look, it started uh, just with a few bucks in my pocket. Uh, hey, we're going to print this first issue. It was during COVID. It was something that I'd had in my mind. You know, I started, I should say, by the way, that maybe the most prominently, uh, uh, the prominent feature uh, of the journal, the most kind of uh, engagement we get is on the Instagram account. Um, and that's where I publish, you know, personally, a lot of more hidden histories. Um, but it started that way. I formed the Instagram account almost four years ago, but didn't really print the first issue of the of the print publication until until April of of twenty one. Um, and so that was just a few bucks in the pocket, and and you know, and we ended up selling all of them, and people responded really well. So the Knight Foundation uh, gave 
uh, gave us a grant uh, to keep on printing it and to kind of sort of expand some of the digital stuff that we have on the website, you know, digital library, um, you know, to kind of commission uh, work related to the social media accounts. And, um, and we were also able to hire, you know, I now have an editor. Uh, her name's Jasmine Respes, and she's super talented, uh, writer and publisher. We were able to bring on, an, uh, and by the way, I should say from day one, uh, the only person who's been with me from day one is Christina Gonzalez, who does like the layout of each issue. And she's a teacher by day, which is all to say none of us really, you know, uh, make a living off this thing. It's more of a passion project. Um, you know, I hear I that. As, um, <laughs> And so it's Christina Jasmine, and then we're able to bring on a few fellows for each issue that we print, you know, who come on and, and help, um, you know, create content for the Instagram, help with research, uh, learn about research. So that's the sort of day-to-day of the journal. I mean, it's social media heavy. It's just, I'll, I'll be doing personally uh, research on, um, you know, hidden histories and, and publishing those on the Instagram account. And there's always wonderful engagement on those. I just posted about... Um, Gloria Hemingway, uh, Ernest Hemingway's, um, you know, daughter was born Gregory, but um, decided very early on that that she was a woman and and was treated very poorly in the press and and by the family for that reason. Uh, and she um, she lived in Miami and died in Miami. And so I thought that that folks in the area would mm. be interested to know about her story. Um. And so, so that's part of it, right? The big social media, then now we have the staff, uh, and we actually have a new issue coming out in like three weeks, hopefully. Awesome. Uh, we've been collecting, we're a little behind on it. The summer was a little slow, you know, staff getting COVID one by one, but, um, but yeah, we're printing that issue. And then also a special fun hurricane Andrew zine that will go out to subscribers, um, uh, and so those are the things that are kind of up next. Uh, who knows what 2023 holds? I mean, we'll definitely be printing four issues of the journal, but I, I hope that we'll be expanding some of our you know digital content, um, particularly the the digital library and um, you know and uh, maybe even some digital publishing. You know, maybe some reviews, interviews type things. But but can't say for sure. But I'm hoping that that's what happens. That's great. And, and I hope, as you alluded to, that subscribers will be kept abreast of all these developments. <laughs> I do my as best to communicate, you know, that's, yeah, no, and I appreciate that. You know, it's, yeah. it, uh, it's, um, I have trouble keeping up with even my meager social media. <laughs> so yeah, I try I, my yeah, best to like, you know, do the email blast and do the social media. It's okay. a lot of work for, for email one works uh, for me. poorly paid fella, <laughs> but, uh, but I will certainly keep subscribers. I mean, really appreciate it. You know, and, and, uh, the subscribers, what they get, by the way, and this goes out to anybody who's been interested in subscribing, is you get all four issues that are published in 2022. So it starts with the third issue, the See It Like an Invasive issue, and this next one, and then the Hurricane Androgene, and then one more issue before the end of the year. So you get four issues, and if you order online, it's like uh, 60 bucks, including shipping, and you're supporting... Uh, Miami area and Florida area, you know, and artists and writers from the Caribbean. We pay every single contributor to the issue. Uh, and we try to be, you know, somewhat competitive, but, you know, I think most people are really happy to be part of it regardless. But um, we also give people who like, sometimes people refuse payment because they recognize that we're like this upstart nonprofit mm -hmm. literary journal. And so we instead uh, will donate, uh, you know, their fees to a nonprofit of their choosing. Um, 
because we really feel that it's our role to be a vessel for payment, you know, to writers and artists in the subtropics. All right. Well, I think I could definitely see Islandia entering the larger Florida canon in this way, establishing itself. I mean, that's that's good news for the uh, journal going forward. Do you have all these plans? And what about you personally? Anything uh, projects in the works? Things coming down. Uh, like, you know, I alluded to it. I'm just trying to finish this novel. Um, you know, it's uh, it's the working title is Foreclosure. It's set during the housing market crash. Um, follows a young photographer um who's been hired by a sort of against his wits uh by a real estate development company to go take photos of a portfolio of homes that they purchased sight unseen and uh and he ends up in cape coral uh where he meets a nazi professor and an 18 year old jewish kid <laughs> who are teammates somehow in the hunting of Nile monitor lizards on the cows of Cape Coral and decides instead to film their work. Uh, he's bored of the houses. So he quits that job and, and he decides to begin um, filming a pilot for a TV show about uh, hunting Nile monitor lizards in Cape Coral. And so that's, that's in the works. Some, um, you know, hoping to get that out in a couple of years, but it's, um, that's, you know, that's besides Islandia, that's my number one. Gotcha. That was, and you know what, that was going to be my question. When, when are, when is it going to see the light of day? When can we read this? So you, you, you answered that. I, and the I wheels mean, look, of I publishing mean, turn slowly. <laughs> even if I sold it next week, you know, it would be, it would be yeah. 18 months. Uh, so, so, you know, that's, that's in the works though. And I'm happy to, you know, at this point I'm far enough along on it that I'm happy to talk about it. And thank you for asking, you know, but, um, Islandia is my baby, and and that's really what I'm focused on. In the meantime, I just would love to publish fiction, um, you know, and the book in particular. All right, those uh, those all sound like very noble passions to have. Too. <laughs> so, uh, thank you. So, uh, anyway, uh, to any everyone listening, you can uh, there are going to be there will be links to Islandia's website uh, with this episode, and you can subscribe there and. Uh, I know. I'm fine. I guess a, a final thing. I mean, there are places. Are there places out and about in the area where you could buy individual issues? I feel like. Yeah, uh, I mean, mostly in South. Do you just Florida. happen to run across it in your favorite newsstand or bookstore or something? Well, I hope you know they're mostly in the Miami area. Um, you know, I would love to get it out to other places in Florida. So this is you know a call to any sort of bookstores or shops that would be interested in carrying it. We got wholesale rates, baby. Um, <laughs> we, but. Um, it's in Miami. You can get it at books and books. You can actually get it at books and books in Key West. Also, um, you can get it at, uh, Dalazine, uh, paradise books and bread, uh, sweat records, technique records, exile books. So it's, it's in stock in a lot of different shops in Miami area. Um, I think there should still be copies at the Marco Island historical museum. Um, and I wonder if I'm forgetting anything. Wow, other side of the state <laughs> yeah yeah it was in, in the second issue um austin bell who's uh who works there wrote a wonderful oh, the boat. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's right and, and so uh, he was able to help us get it over there um, that's cool yeah and i would just for any of these stockists i would i would definitely just call ahead and make sure that they have them you know we're not people magazine where you can rest <laughs> assured 
that it's going to be on the shelf. You know, they don't let us know the day they run out of their Islandias. You know, we're not. <laughs> There's that little tag that says out order more or something. We're not exactly big business for them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, gotcha. I mean, maybe, maybe someday we'll, we'll hold that weight in a bookstore. All right. I should say for our <laughs> listeners, the week that this is being recorded, uh, uh, Jason is also giving a talk about the origin of the of of Elandia and everything. Of course, by the time this is uh, people are hearing this, it will be uh, <laughs> you know, already. But maybe it will be archived yeah. by then or we can catch up with Jason on how that went. Or you can cool. get hold of him. So, uh, Jason Katz, you're now a member of the Florida Book Club. Chris, thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me and, and being a fan of the journal. You know, our T-shirts say. Uh, a big fan and uh, and they show a, a picture of people on an airboat, uh, you know, so I, I'll send one your way, so, you know, for big fans. Oh, yeah. Oh, I got the hook. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. I want to apologize to Jason and our listeners for chronically mispronouncing the name of his passion project, Islandia. <laughs> I also want to acknowledge the tragic catastrophe just inflicted on our state and send wishes for a complete recovery to Southwest Florida and everyone affected by Hurricane Ian. It's just gut-wrenching to see the kind of suffering these storms can inflict. And we have links with this episode where you can donate toward relief and recovery efforts. Each episode this season, we will feature links to donate or will otherwise assist people whose lives have been upended in the wake of this storm. We also have links to Elandia's website and its Instagram. See you at our next meeting.